The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Liam Proud, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. If anyone could be said to personify the reigning system of global trade, it would be Pascal Lamy. He served as Director General of the World Trade Organization from 2005 until 2013. Prior to that, Pascal served as the European Commissioner for Trade. Those were what can only be described as the peak years for globalization. China had just become a member of the WTO in 2001 a move that saw 300 million Chinese move from below the poverty line. But all of that is now under threat. Donald Trump has initiated a trade skirmish with China, imposing tariffs on some $250 billion of goods. China has retaliated, and Trump is dangling the prospect of more. Pascal is worried by all this, naturally. Our global editor Rob Cox and I sat down with Pascal at the XBMA conference in Paris recently to hear his perspectives on trade, the American president, and much more. Give it a listen. Look, Pascal, you are you in, in many ways are sort of the public face of global trade over the past 20 years, both working at uh, obviously running the WTO, obviously your role at the commission. I mean, how do you assess, you know, the, the fact that in many quarters trade has become something of a four letter word? I mean, what how do you push back on that and try to get people to think back to the the benefits, not just for emerging economies, but also for developed economies, um, given that where we are right now? Well, first, let's look at the numbers. Uh, uh, you're right, trade is less uh, 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 popular in part of this planet, uh, but it's a tiny part of this planet. Of course, it's, it's a very noisy part of this planet because it's the developed uh, industrial countries. But let's assume, let's say, rough number, let's assume 30% of northern countries' population has turned anti-trade, anti-globalization. That's a maximum of 300 million people. And we still have 7 billion people on this planet. So what is true is that the overall consensus that globalization works and is the right, the way to go, and that open trade the way to go, is some way fractured between a small vocal camp, uh, which which has gone the other way around, and the rest, which is sort of very big and very silent, which hasn't changed its mind. So it's not that, you know, national populism translating into trade measures the way Trump does it is uh, contaminates everything. Mm. I mean, yeah, he's a, you saw it's a, it's a small vocal uh, constituency, but with a very large megaphone. I agree. I agree with that. Uh, and that's uh, why I say it's, it's, uh, it's noisy. Uh, and, and it's, and it's a, a consequence of globalization trade opening, let's say, I mean, the connection between globalization and trade opening is intensification of international exchange, right? goods, services, people, capital. Globalization has gone deeper. And what so far had cautioned the Ricardo Schumpeterian impact of globalization on social systems has shrunk with the financial crisis in places where it was 
relatively substantial, like UK, for instance. And by the way, US is a place where it's never been very substantial, and I'm not surprised that it's in the place of this planet where social safety nets are the smallest that Trump was elected. Do you, do you when you look back at you know your your career in, in trying to uh, foster global cooperation and trade, do you think that there was a moment where you sort of wish ah wish we'd focused a bit more on that question, the question of the the the, the, the worker in the you know Ohio Absolutely. or wherever is there and and what and if I mean obviously it's easy in hindsight to say yeah sure we should have but what what could be done. <laughs> I've, I've always had that in mind. Uh, I wrote it in a book which I wrote the day I left WTO, which is how, how do you make trade opening benefit to all. Mm. The problem being that this is not a trade issue. This is a domestic mm. social system issue, uh, social at large with you know education, industrial policy, regional mobility. I mean, it's it's... Ricardo and Schumpeter tells you that trade opening works because it's painful and it's painful because it works. And for a very long time, and we, you know, we, we, we learned that from the, first, from the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, which is why welfare systems were invented mm. uh, in different places. And the European welfare system has always been thicker than the US one, we redistribute 45% of what we produce. The US is 35%. The 10% difference mm. is what, in my view, explained that we so far haven't had a Trump elected in Europe, whereas we had a Trump elected in the US. But pretending that this is a trade issue, that this has to do with it's, it's, it's a domestic issue. Although, of course, the UK, and you could argue Italy, are now going through their... I mean, the UK with Brexit, which was before the US election, of course, was, was partly a response to this, this, this concern, no? Yeah, but, you know, I don't think Italy will leave the Euro tent at all. You don't? I mean, no. you know, you talk to people in the Northern League or the Lega, yeah. they seem... They seem to they, they have a similar approach to, to the way Trump does with bad yeah. deals. We all got bad deals. We I got agree. a bad deal with the lira against the Deutschmark. It's a sort of ancient that. grievance almost. But uh, La Liga is uh, is only a small part of the coalition, uh, and they are in no way. I mean, if you look at if you look at polls, I mean, Italians don't want to leave the the euro. They don't want to leave Europe, and they don't want to leave the euro. I mean, they have a problem with Europe because they think Europe basically let them down mm. <laughs> on this migration issue, which I think is uh, true. So that's all sort of coalesced into the question absolutely, of rather absolutely. it's about migrants rather but the, than... The, the, the big, I mean, the backlash from globalization comes from the inability of a number of systems to address this social insecurity issue. Uh, and uh, and you know it's there's, there's always been there's always been a, a very strong correlation uh, between attitudes to trade openness mm. and quality of social systems. Well, you, you you mentioned the industrial revolution example a minute ago, which is not terribly kind of comforting because you know that the reaction to those kind of dislocations took decades in places. I mean, what's the sort of I mean, what in terms of what's being done now to respond to these? kind of, you know, criticisms of globalization. Do you think enough is being done? No, no, I think, I think, I mean, revamping, I mean, addressing social insecurity 
in today's world is quite different from what it was in the end of the 19th century or even after the Second World War. I mean, the economy has changed, technology has totally overhauled this. Uh, you know, you knew that at the time you had uh, to uh, protect, uh, you know, you had trade unions, I mean, it's all changed. But the, the impact of globalization and technology and globalization is very often seen, rightly so, as a transmission belt of, of technological progress, which, which it is when you look at, at the numbers. This is extremely efficient, much more than in the past, and extremely painful for some. So the winner-loser equation is still there. The problem is that so far we probably haven't, and that's a big issue. You know, that, that's why social democrats are down the drain in, uh, in uh, uh, all countries of this planet, at least in Europe, which is... Uh, Although they're having their first, their first resurgence or surgence in, in the United States. <laughs> you have a couple of people calling themselves social democrats. It's a yeah. quite different thing. Yeah, well, yeah, but you know, it's still... Uh, well, still democratic uh, socialists. <laughs> well, <laughs> Europe has been run for 50 years by a sort of coalition between Christian democrats and social democrats. Now, both of them have serious problems because the world of politics is changing, but the ones that have a bigger problem than the others are social democrats, and I'm well placed to know that. So that's something which we haven't properly addressed and which explains a part of the national populist surge. Now, how much of the part is not all of the part? I mean, the, the socio-economic root of national populism is... Uh, probably one-third of the total, there's a very strong sort of cultural element which has to do with uh, perceptions, with, uh, uh, with uh, labor mobility, with uh, the evolution of, uh, you know, gay marriage. And uh, I mean, when you talk to a, to a, a Czech uh, or a Hungarian or a Pole about LGBT, they have a problem, and they saddle Europe for that. Right. Uh, so, I mean, the, the sort of this cultural brewing is also something which haven't, we, haven't, we haven't properly addressed that. I mean, we, we, we're all too many economists <laughs> and not enough anthropologists. That's, that's a good point. I mean, one of the, just going back to the trade question, you, one of the, the things that I think that pro- global trade uh, people failed to do was to really explain the benefits. I mean, so you could say, well, 300 million people um, went from below the poverty line to above after China entered the, um, yeah. the WTO in 2001. And then the, the auto worker, the guy who used to work in the steel mill in Pittsburgh says, well, what about me? Mm -hmm. But of course, the cost of goods and services have plummeted, and, and you can do any you can do any kind of comparison with I don't know 30, 40 years ago. Um, the cost in real purchasing power um, has has Absolutely. gone down dramatically, Absolutely. and that's for everybody. But how come nobody has articulated that? Well, you know, but that's I mean, all trade negotiators know they have to cope with this asymmetry. Huh? The victims are noisy. The winners are silent, hmm. and the winners are silent because they don't know that they buy their t-shirt cheaper. Yeah, the uh, toaster costs 40% less than their course, parents I mean, paid for it. You know, nobody's going to demonstrate in the right. streets 
for free trade because it makes goods cheaper. Mm. Whereas the people who lose their job because trade makes goods cheaper, they are going to demonstrate. Now, that's, that's a large part of, of, of the sort of traditional equation of trade negotiators. There's one more dimension to that, which is that for a long time, you know, trade opening was about reducing obstacles, the purpose of which was to protect producers. Tariffs, subsidies, quantitative. That's the old way, the Smoot-Hawley era, McKinley tariffs. So there you have this winner-loser equation, which is traditional, which hasn't been properly solved. And then on top of that now, you have to cope with a world where opening trade is much more about adjusting measures, the purpose of which is to protect consumers, not producers. And this is a totally different ballgame. It's the other way around. If, if, I'm, if I'm a classical trade negotiator, I have domestic companies against me, but I have consumers with me, although, as we said, they are mostly silent. If I'm in the business of, of, of harmonizing pesticide residues or the size of bumpers or the safety of lighters, I have producers with me because they are appetized at the notion that there will be a global standard and that's good for economies of scale and they can go global and be more efficient. But I'll have consumers against me because consumers will inevitably have a suspicion that I'm trying to reduce their cherished level of precaution in order to open trade and competition. So we, we now have both of these political problems together. One was enough <laughs> to create problems, but we now have two. And the problem is that we cannot address these two together, which is why, for instance, this, this trans, uh, transatlantic thing crashed down because they did not realize at all on both sides that they were inflaming two powerful constituencies, sort of trade union-like on the one side and consumer organization on the other side. That And well, the, the country that broke down TTIP is Germany. And Germany is not a, is not a protectionist country. It's a precautionist country. And that's, so that also grows into why trade opening has become difficult, because if it's about GM food or animal welfare or mm -mm, that stuff, huh? it's, uh, you know, reducing tariffs on, on scrap metal and bicycles is ideologically flat. Uh, at the end of the day, it's obvious yeah. that it makes sense. If it's about GM food or about data privacy, for instance, which is the big thing in, in the digitalization of the economy, this is much more sensitive politically and it creates a sort of cultural identity issue, which, again, scrap metal and, and bicycles did not. It, it was a pure question of do I lose my job and in which condition. Here is do I lose my identity? Uh, and we or do my that. health or my uh, well-being? Yeah. Yeah, or you know, or am, I, am I becoming a stranger? Am I becoming a stranger in my home? Uh, which is the big, the big leverage for, for, for populists to, to raise. Does, does that make this kind of <coughs> anti-trade mood that we're seeing at the moment, does it make it more, more permanent than it would be otherwise? Because, I mean, the way that you were describing it a minute ago was... There's, you know, there's a few key constituencies who are probably a minority on a global scale who are really kind of driving a lot of the animosity we're seeing at the moment. You can imagine a moment where, you know, 
those powers are, are no longer ascendant in, in, in the White House or in the Conservative Party in Britain. Yeah. I mean, how, how quickly could we go back to, to normal if the 1990s was normal? I mean, I think it's. I mean, I think it's. It's a transition, and there are. I mean, it will take time. Of course. On top of all that, we have Trump, huh, who started. I mean, he was the first. Uh, you know, the, the U.S. never elected a protectionist president since 1900. Huh? No, no U.S. presidential candidate. <laughs> campaign on the protectionist platform since 1900. He did. Mm. He was elected. And for him, you know, America first is about, uh, is about hitting China, basically. Uh, and this is the big, that's what I said this morning, you know, this is the big geopolitical thing on top of what we've just described as a sort of 20, 30, 40 year evolution. And, and, there, and there are ways to cope with that, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, the notion that uh, global capitalism uh, works with, uh, with economies of scales and efficiencies will remain. It, again, it, it's with pain and the way, and you have to address the pain knowing, as we just said, that the pain is socioeconomic and cultural. But top, I mean, Trump comes on top of that. Uh, and whether he will accelerate this, whether he succeeds uh, uh, in economic terms, and how will this China-U.S. rivalry uh, go? I mean, the, I'm, I'm pessimistic on that one. He has, of course, redressed it up lately about, uh, about IP and intellectual theft, of, you know, intellectual property theft. I mean, how... But that's not the most convincing case. The most convincing yeah. case is uh, subsidies. Where, where, where Trump is right mm. <laughs> is that uh, the rules of world trade today do not properly discipline a number of Chinese trade practices. Now, IP is not, is not the word because, I mean, China joining the WTO was a huge step forward for China in recognizing uh, IP protection. There are deals where if you want to invest in China, you have to, but... You, you have know, to share you, technology. Okay, but right. I mean, nobody obliges you to go and invest in China. So, I mean, the, the Chinese have a case in saying, look, it doesn't uh, seem to have others do that. Uh, India does it, Brazil does it. So, where, where there is a big hole in the, in the system is in, the, in, these, in these rules about subsidies, subsidization, uh, and the way they distort trade, and, and it's true that with the present rules in WTO, if you want to make the case that a Chinese subsidy does distort trade to your disadvantage, it's, it's a labyrinth. It's and a legal labyrinth. And you're talking about, it could be state-owned enterprises, it could Absolutely. be subsidized Absolutely. funding of those companies, Absolutely. like you just saw in the auto sector. Absolutely. So those, those kinds of, is there a way to better, uh, to, to, to give non-Chinese companies an opportunity to take this? Is there a way to simplify the, the yeah. Yeah. appeals you have, process? You have to reform WTO rules. So that's which, is, that's which is, by the way, what EU and Japan are trying to do in talking separately for the moment to US on the one side and to China on the other side, hoping that at the end of the day, China and US will talk to each other in a way that calms down uh, this issue.
I know you say you're pessimistic about where this goes, particularly the U.S.-China relationship. I'm I'm geopolitically pessimistic if Trump keeps rolling back China instead of containing China, which was the previous uh, U.S. uh, policy, because for a simple reason, because I, I know the Chinese system, I work with them, it will only reinforce within the Politburo the camp that says uh, we should not trust these long noses. Uh, and that will make China more nationalistic, more self-centered. Look at what happened with ZTE, look at what happened yesterday with the Juan uh, uh, electronic uh, chip company. Uh, that's the danger. Now, in geoeconomic terms, there is room for improving the system, and by the way, for for Trump uh, uh, claiming victory, uh, if China accepts that, and and some of them are, I mean, you've probably uh, spotted that uh, ex Governor Zhu or the President Wang Yi have already gone public in saying, well, we would be ready to consider something like uh, competitive neutrality yeah. for the state-owned enterprise sector, which you know, in in Chinese terms can be interpreted now. Of course, like usual, uh, central bank governor of China is the liberal, <laughs> is the liberal ale of the system, and they, that's the one they send to test a few balloons. So there, there is, uh, I mean, in, in geoeconomic terms, I think, A, Trump will not succeed in shrinking the U.S. trade deficit. Well, you just saw it last month. You had uh, a great quarter for GDP, but you actually saw the trade deficit increase. A, because he's pumping a lot of money into the economy, which is near full capacity, which then leads to more imports. And B, because, you know, the the U.S. trade deficit is the flip side of the supremacy of the dollar. Where, where, Where the U.S. are really America first is in the dollar. And, and, the consequences of they being America first on the dollar is that they have a trade deficit. I mean, all economists will tell you that's how it works. Of course, if you weaponize the uh, reserve currency, you, you, it's perilous long term, don't you think? Absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, long, long, I mean, 30, 40 years from now, it's likely that the dollar will not be, uh, will not have the sort of supremacy it has because the renminbi and to some extent the euro will have produced enough assets to invest in, in, in renminbi or euro-denominated assets, which are alternative opportunities. So it's... But we, as you say, that's, that's years away. That's yeah. the... Agree, agree, agree. So, you know, we, once more, we have, a, we have a geopolitical problem, which is dangerous, whereas geoeconomics could adjust and adapt, and it's a bit of a race. It's a bit like Brexit. You know, Brexit, Brexit is a very good mini, it's a very good lab. Uh, Europe, Europe integration has been a very good lab of globalization. Brexit is a very good lab of deglobalization, a limited deglobalization, where a political decision tries to impose itself on an economic reality, and we see that it doesn't work. I mean, the, 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 the politics have decided and the economics are resisting because of the cost of this degradation. But, this but it's, it's a perceived cost at the moment. It isn't, we don't yet know the cost of Brexit, we know, which is... We, I mean, we know, 
No. The Brits have been saying for 30 years that removing borders was the best thing to do to increase the efficiency of the economy. And I know that. Huh? I was chief of staff of Delors when he first met Margaret Thatcher and said, uh, should we not uh, do something like the internal market? And she said, of course we should do that. Of course we should remove the bloody border. We said, yeah, of course. We remain an island, so we will care about rabbits and horses. And uh, you know, this, this is a separate thing. But of course we have to remove borders. And we did. Now, if, if she was right, re-putting a border goes the other way around. So if removing borders is efficient, re-putting borders is inefficient. And we know that. And the only question is how much, which is why the debate within the UK system, and that's the only, the only Brexit debate now, is between the Brits. The only debate is how thick will be the border. Huh? A thick border, we exit okay politically, but at high cost, and a thin border, low cost, but whether you really exit is doubtful because the only way to have a thin border is for UK to keep following EU standards. Which is the most likely of those two possibilities at the moment, the politics it's, or the economics? I mean, I've always said that. I've said that for two years now. I mean, the, and, and they've given a name to my, to my thinking, which is Brino. Mm. It's, it's the only solution. Brexit in name only. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a negative qualification of reality, which is that it, they have to exit, that's what I said this morning, they have to exit politically as much as possible and economically as little as possible. That's the compromise. And true, it's, uh, you know, and I, I said that from the, the day after the referendum, it's about removing uh, uh, the UK egg from the EU omelette, uh, and that's a tough thing to do. And in the meantime, we realize that there is a Northern Irish egg into the Irish omelette uh, on top of the thing, as if it was uh, not. So it's, but it's back to, to our conversation on trade and globalization. It's a very interesting mini deglobalization experience. Right. Now, just lastly, I mean, you're, we're here in Paris speaking. I mean, how, how, where do you, how do you see the French position on all of this? I mean, it, it seems at the moment to be still clinging very much to the sort of globalist perspective that, that has driven uh, much of trade negotiations over the past yeah. 30 years and that is imperiled, as, as you say. I mean, do you think, though, that that, you know, when I look at the Macron government or Macron's popularity, do you think he can, can he hold that line? I mean, is he, is he facing the same populist winds that everyone else is? I mean, he certainly is the most global-minded president we've had ever not least because of his uh, young age, uh, his education, his, uh, I mean, he's speaking English uh, properly, which hadn't been the case for any of his uh, predecessors, maybe, with, maybe an exception with Giscard uh, to some extent. So, I mean, he, he's the most global-minded president. He won against an ultra-nationalist, anti-globalist, uh, now, where is, where is the French public opinion? French public opinion is, is now in, in the European average. Uh, of course, people, uh, the French don't like uh, capitalism, uh, they don't like competition, uh, they don't like markets, if you, if you pull this, uh, but they still feel on majority that 
opening trade is, uh, is a good thing to do. So probably sort of, you know, be 60, 60, 40, 65. So I don't think there's any risk. Uh, uh, not least because, you know, like most European countries, starting with Germany, of course, but like most European countries, I mean, the, the French overall understand that the domestic growth of the economy will be you know, 1.5, maybe 2% if reforms go well. And that, that means that, I mean, the, 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 the increase in demand to the French economy will come from outside. A large part of that will come because of the growth differential. I mean, if the, if the, if the world does 3.5% 3 average, and uh, France does 1.5 or 2 percent. It, it needs to tap into the rest of the world's growth rate. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, you know, and that's a large, a large number of French businesses, although less export-oriented uh, than Italy, for instance, or, uh, of course, uh, Germany. But well, Germany is a bit of a specific case because they have a macroeconomic uh, issue with uh, with, uh, uh, with their, their macroeconomic equation is, is producing too much external surplus because they save too much and don't invest enough. So, I mean, I, I think as long as, uh, as long as the fight is in between, uh, uh, let's say, pro a progressive center, and you can discuss whether Macron is uh, on the center-right side or on the, and a Front National uh, uh, the first one will win. I, I don't think there's any, there's any doubt about that. Uh, and I don't see this changing, uh, changing quickly. Well, great to chat yeah. with you. Thank you very much, very good. Pascal. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, your, your pessimism is uh, overdone. <laughs> and and <laughs> we'll see, though. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Ben Kellerman, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter at breakingviews. Thanks for tuning in and adios.